Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 36, The End of Legitimacy. Last time, we saw how the Emperor Maurice dealt with the two-front disaster left to him by his predecessors. He spent a fruitless eight years banging Persian heads together, failing to get a peace treaty, while the Avars and Slavs ran roughshod over the Balkans. But then came the lucky break the overthrow of King Hormist by the general Bahram, and the arrival on the Byzantine doorstep of a desperate young King Khusro II. As I said last week, no emperor during the History of Byzantium podcast was dealt a less promising political situation than Maurice. So it's a real reward for his hard work and perseverance that this Sassanid civil war handed him exactly what he was looking for. As you know, peace treaties between the Persians and the Byzantines have not been particularly secure across the last century. We've had four major wars since Kavad and Anastasius first quarrelled all those years ago, and on each occasion the peace has left one side unsatisfied with the deal. No one had yet found a scenario where both sides could happily accept the border and be confident that no further conflict would arise. This was a tangible goal, given how relatively peaceful things were during the 5th century. And now, Maurice had the best chance possible of making something stick. Kusro II had fled across the border and sent word that he needed Maurice's help to retake his throne. In exchange for the emperor's assistance, he was willing to return the cities of Martyropolis and Dara, so recently occupied by the Persians, along with a large chunk of Persian Armenia. But as the young king fretted nervously in the border city of Circassium, another message reached Maurice. This was from Bahram, the usurping king of kings, sitting in Tessaphon. Despite his seemingly victorious position, Bahram knew that the civil war had only just begun and was very concerned that the Byzantines should not interfere. So he went one better. You can have Dara, Martyropolis and Armenia, but if you support my claim to the throne, 
I will throw in the city of Nisbis. Now this was a tempting offer. During the course of our podcast, Nisbis has been a bastion of Persian power, the gatekeeper of their territory. But it was long held as a Roman city, and was only surrendered when Julian died on campaign in the 360s. More than just the chance to retake territory, though, Bahram wasn't asking for any help. He wanted the Byzantines to agree a peace and leave him be while he cut down any further resistance to his regime. Khusrow II, on the other hand, would need military assistance to return home. That meant sending Byzantine troops to their death while the Balkans stood undefended. The temptation for Maurice to take Bahram's offer must have been huge. Most of the emperor's advisers, including the patriarch, preferred to take the deal and leave the Persians to implode. In a move which speaks highly of Maurice's political acumen, he did not take the easy option. Instead, he agreed to help young Khusrow. The emperor's logic was that any Persian civil war was bound to be unstable and potentially dangerous for Byzantium, whereas a Persia at peace would be more likely to leave their neighbours alone. In which case, who would be the best king of kings from Maurice's point of view? Bahram, a general who had spent his life fighting the empire and whose legitimacy would be based entirely on military victories? Or Khusrow, the legitimate heir to the throne, grandson of the great Khusrow I, who would now owe his life and throne to Maurice? Although it was the harder option, it proved to be the right choice for the empire. Khusrow II was in his early twenties, and would end up not only keeping the peace, but possibly looking up to the 52-year-old emperor of the Romans as his patron, or benefactor. So king and emperor began to make plans for an invasion, and the news quickly spread to Persia, where support for the exiled monarch began to gather. In spring 591, Khusrow marched home with the army of the east, led by its new commander Narses, no relation to Justinian's chamberlain, and the garrisons of Martyropolis, Dara and Nisbis all quickly welcomed their legitimate ruler, and a two-pronged invasion of Persian territory began. One force made its way to Tessaphon, while Narses and Khusrow marched into Persian Atropatine to gather reinforcements. Bahram was forced to abandon his capital and was finally defeated just south of Lake Ermia. So King Khusrow II was restored to his throne, and after he paid the Byzantine army a generous donative, Maurice began to withdraw his forces. The empire had emerged from the war with an enlarged share of Armenia, control of Lazica and Iberia, and a friend on the Persian throne. It was all beyond Maurice's wildest dreams, but there was no time to gloat. Troops were rapidly transferred to the west to deal with the situation in the Balkans. And by 593, Priscus, the man who had been stoned for delivering the news of a pay cut, now led the Balkan armies across the Danube into the territory of the Slavs. With so many Slavic settlers spread across the Balkans, it was decided that it would be easier to attack their homeland than to track them down individually. 
Hopefully some of the raiders would return to protect their families, or if not, at least they would understand that no reinforcements would be coming their way. The Slavic homeland on the northeast of the Danube was not technically Avar territory, but the Avars made loud protests over this interference. Priscus was successful, and twice defeated Slav armies that he brought to battle. Although this all sounds like great news for the empire, Maurice was not feeling the release of pressure that you might imagine. Remember that Justin II had already found the army tricky to afford, and Tiberius II had recruited 15,000 new men who needed to be paid. Although the war in the east was over, troops were still needed to garrison the Persian frontier, while the rest of the army was now campaigning in the Balkans. When the emperor looked in his treasury, he still saw nothing but cobwebs, and continued to worry that the army which was keeping the empire together would soon bankrupt it. In an attempt to cut costs, Maurice sent word to Priscus that his army should stay north of the Danube and spend the winter in Slav territory. This would have saved the empire from feeding and supplying its men for months, but of course was deeply unpopular with the army. Living in tents all winter was going to be cold and uncomfortable, supplying themselves every day was going to be hard and dangerous, and none of them would be able to see their families or sell any slaves or booty they had captured in the markets of Constantinople. When news of the order reached the army, outrage was the order of the day, and mutiny was on tomorrow's docket. Priscus, of course, had seen all this before, and so he countermanded the order. He led his army to the city of Odessus on the Black Sea and spent the winter within the borders of the empire. Wise as this may have been, Maurice was unhappy and replaced Priscus with his brother Peter. When the new commander arrived in spring 594, he brought with him more news of the emperor's economizing. Again, Maurice wanted to replace the allowances for weapons and clothes with a supply system. The emperor knew that the army had already mutinied once over this order, so he sent it with some concessions. He promised that the places of men killed in action would be reserved for their sons to inherit, and that disabled veterans would keep receiving their allowances. The army was pleased with the concessions, but unhappy with the pay cut. When they made this clear to Peter, he was forced to agree to their terms meaning that instead of a cut in the amount the treasury owed, the Balkan armies would actually receive an increase. Maurice was furious with his brother's concessions, and Priscus was restored to command in 595. Priscus was given instructions to attack the Avars, who had begun to encroach across the Danube. The emperor knew that he couldn't properly guard the frontier until the Avars were brought to heel, and he had his eyes on cutting off the tribute he paid to them as well. Priscus forced the Avars away from Singidunum, but couldn't prevent them raiding Dalmatia on their way home. We should note it's a mark of significant improvement in the tactics and training of the Roman army that they could take on the Avars at all. The Avars were, of course, the same kind of mounted bowmen who Attila had led to victory after victory over the imperial armies of a century before. The Avars did not have Attila's numbers, to be fair, but it still speaks well of the Byzantine adaption to, and adoption of, 
mounted archer warfare. Prisca spent 586 and 587 clearing the Balkans of any remaining Slav settlers, while Maurice anxiously tried to balance his checkbook. News from the rest of the empire was neutral. The peace was being maintained in Africa, but not without effort and expense, while in Italy the plague returned to make life miserable for everyone as the Lombards continued to nibble at imperial territory. With his army spread out across the Balkans, Priscus was taken by surprise when the Avars launched an invasion in the fall of 597. Priscus occupied the Black Sea port of Tomi, where the Avar Kargan Bayan besieged him that winter. Comentiolus brought a relief force up from the capital the next spring, but the Avars chased him off and captured the city of Drusipara, near to Adrianople, and not too far from Constantinople. But that same year, Yersinia Pestis made one of its larger recurrences, breaking out from Italy, with mixed results for the empire. The Balkans, Constantinople, Anatolia and parts of the east were all affected, driving down tax revenues and causing the usual dislocation and death. However, the one blessing from a Byzantine perspective was that the Avar army camped in Byzantine territory caught it too. Bayan was said to have lost seven sons to the outbreak, and in his grief he agreed peace terms and marched home. But as plague spread with him north of the Danube, Maurice once again eyed a golden opportunity. Despite the raging plague and his financial fears, the emperor ordered his army to cross the Danube, head into the homeland of the Avars, and attack them. Comentiolus guarded the rear, while Priscus led his force into the lion's den. After two decades of war, the men of the armies of Thrace and Illyricum were as tough and professional as it comes. The Avars, taken by surprise and dropping from the vanguard of bubonic plague, were defeated in no less than four major battles. Tens of thousands were killed or captured during the summer of 599, and Priscus returned home having pacified the Danube frontier for the first time in nearly 40 years. This was another stunning victory. We have no contemporary historian who can really put these battles into colour or context in a way which can capture our imaginations. But really, Maurice comes out of these wars as one of the great military leaders in Roman history. Having been a successful general himself, he was then able to master both the Persians and the Avars, using the superior tax revenue, manpower, organisation and training of the Byzantine state and army to grind his opponents down and force peace upon them. Yet, in a familiar refrain, the news at home was not good for the emperor. He remained unpopular with his people. It's entirely understandable that the magnitude of his strategic brilliance was lost on the average baker or brickworker back in Constantinople. What they felt every day was the emperor's relentless economising and the return of the plague. To add to this misery, news came that Maurice had sent thousands of Avar prisoners home for free, while refusing to ransom 12,000 Byzantines, who were promptly executed by the Avars. 
In both cases, it seems that Maurice may have been acting with farsightedness. By returning the Avar prisoners, he was hoping to foster some goodwill amongst the people he had just crushed. Already embittered at their defeat, perhaps this gesture would help maintain peace for a little longer. And although we aren't sure of this, it seems possible that most of the 12,000 Byzantines were not noble men captured in battle, but deserters who had gone over to the Avar side. The emperor was already struggling to pay the men he had, and probably felt that these men had made their beds, so now they could go lie in them. But back home, naturally, the families and friends of the slain were upset and angry with their penny-pinching emperor. To maintain the peace on the Danube, Maurice was forced to keep most of the pre-central armies, along with those of Thrace and Illyricum, out patrolling. Which meant he had to pay and supply them all, while the plague bumped off more loyal subjects. As a result, there was famine in the winter of 602, and riots broke out at Constantinople, which were put down with difficulty. When summer came, Maurice ordered his brother Peter to lead a detachment over the Danube to deal with some Slav raiders, and when resistance was weak, he once again sent word that he would like the army to spend the winter on the other side of the river. Since the Slavs were so weak in that area, it didn't seem likely that the army would have to do much fighting, and afraid to displease his brother, Peter complied. The army, complaining all the way, began to prepare for the crossing. But the weather turned particularly bad that fall, and with the prospect of a winter filled with such storms, the army came to a halt. When Peter refused to back down, the army mutinied, and appointed a centurion named Phocas to be their new general. Peter fled, and arrived back in Constantinople with the terrible news. The rebellious army was on the move, and it was the army closest to the capital. With no precental force to call on, Maurice only had the excubitors and the blues and greens available to man the Theodosian walls. To destabilize the situation further, Focus sent word that he didn't want to be emperor, but that the army did want Maurice to step down. The two men they would accept as replacements were Maurice's 19-year-old son Theodosius or Germanus, the son of Justinian's cousin. Germanus was understandably nervous about being named as a rival to the emperor and so made his way to the Hagia Sophia to take refuge. When Maurice sent some guards to remove him, a riot broke out and the home of the unpopular Praetorian prefect was burnt to the ground. Unable to rely on the capital for safety, Maurice, his wife, and their eight children slipped across the Sea of Marmara and made their way to the coast near Nicomedia. Apparently, Maurice sent his son Theodosius on ahead of him to contact King Kusro and ask for his assistance. Maurice himself suffered from a bad case of gout, and was unable to move any further. It's possible that he thought the situation would be pacified by Germanus, and that he would be able to return soon. 
Back in the city, the Blues and Greens, as ever, fell out over whether Germanus would make a suitable emperor. Meanwhile, Phocas, hearing that no emperor would be ready to greet him when he arrived, decided that there was nothing to stop him, claiming the title for himself. The centurion announced his desire for senate and people to open the gates and acclaim him, which they did. There seems to have been a lot of confusion about what was going on, with some senators apparently not knowing who was about to be crowned. Phocas received the diadem in a church outside the city before his imperial litter was pulled into Constantinople by four white horses. The crowds were excited to see their new ruler, particularly when he began to scatter gold during his procession. He entered the Hippodrome, where races celebrated his arrival. He distributed donatives to his troops and crowned his wife Augusta. Now that he had taken the top job, there was one obvious piece of business to take care of. Focus's agents soon found Maurice in Anatolia. Either not knowing what had happened, or being too depressed to put up further resistance, Maurice remained where he was. He was said to have watched impassively as his family was butchered in front of him, before turning to face his executioner. The heads of the emperor and four of his sons were taken back to be displayed in the capital, while the lifeless bodies were tossed into the water. Maurice was 63 years old, and had ruled the empire better surely than anyone else could have for 20 hard years. It's impossible not to feel sorry for Maurice. When Justinian passed away, one of the conclusions I passed on was from historian Warren Treadgold, who said that Justinian had made the empire harder to govern. We saw in the reigns of Justin II and Tiberius II what could go wrong when men tried to solve the puzzle left to them by the true believer. The Byzantines were very lucky that Maurice was as good at his job as he was, because assaulted by the Persians and Avars at the same time, the empire could have fallen apart. Instead, the emperor held his nerve, beat them both back, and secured a potentially lasting peace. However, despite all his achievements, the emperor was overthrown and killed by his own men. One of the usual hallmarks of a great emperor is that they die in bed. So we are forced to ask, could Maurice have done things differently? And the answer seems to be yes. And despite the praise I have heaped on him, the emperor was responsible for his own downfall. It's not like the uprising came out of the blue. Maurice was in charge of the army of the east when they first made mutinous noises back in the 570s. He had then suffered at least three incidents where an army disobeyed his commands, all of which were based on reducing their pay. Perhaps he should have stopped forcing the issue. But what about the empire's finances? You told us he was having trouble paying the army. Surely if he hadn't tried to economise, then he would have gone broke and the army would have mutinied anyway. Well, this is something we'll never know for sure, but the evidence we do have suggests that the empire never did run out of money. Maurice was just afraid that it might. 
Again, Warren Treadgold points out that Justinian had faced similar crises, particularly in the days after the first outbreak of plague. His solution, as you know, was to delay the pay of less important army units and to let other detachments simply run down, i.e. not recruiting new soldiers when men died or retired. This was hardly a winning strategy, but it worked at the time, and because Justinian chose his commanders carefully, he was able to get away with it. It seems like Maurice would not compromise on the army's strength or on the timing of payday. That's courageous, but it cost him his life. If Maurice had been willing to endure a few more raids, it's possible that he would have been able to slowly reduce the size of the army and get his finances under control. But he didn't. Instead, he insisted that the army bend to his economies, even when he knew they would resent the command. And in the end, that decision cost him his life, his family's lives, and the military security that he had spent 20 years working so hard to secure. The bad news for Byzantium had only just begun, though. We began this episode with Maurice choosing the legitimate heir to the Persian throne over a usurper, believing that stability would be the result. And he was right. When we read or listen to ancient history, it can be easy to dismiss ideas like legitimacy. So many powerful figures just seized power that it would be easy to conclude that legitimacy was a simple matter of having big armies at your disposal. But that's not how things work day to day. Legitimacy was a very important concept. It's what kept men like Justinian on the throne. Justinian was, after all, just a peasant farmer from the middle of nowhere. But he also happened to be the adopted son of Justin, who had been acclaimed by the army, senate, and people. If you killed him, then there would be an awful lot of people who would turn on you for attacking their rightful ruler. Legitimacy may have only been a contract between one man and his millions of subjects, but it meant something. It was an invisible thread that helped keep society together and keep men following orders. Long-time listeners of the History of Rome podcast may think, yeah, yeah, we know all that, but usurpers always come, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that there actually hadn't been a successful usurpation in Constantinople ever. Yeah, I'm serious. From Constantine onwards, only the murder of Jovian had been a successful coup, and that took place out in Anatolia. Back in the capital, from Valens to Theodosius to Arcadius, Theodosius II, Marcion, Leo, Zeno, Anastasius, Justin, Justinian, Justin II, Tiberius II, and now Maurice, were all one long legitimate line of succession. Yes, there had been backroom politicking or dubious circumstances surrounding some of their elevations, but no army had marched on the capital to install them. And almost none of those men were blood sons of the previous emperor. Instead, they were chosen to rule, just like the classical emperors of old, and by and large, had done a good job. Centuries of relatively peaceful transfers of power had kept the horrors of civil war at bay, 
and protected the Eastern Empire when on multiple occasions it was in danger of collapsing, as its western half had done. Now with Maurice dead, and Focus taking charge, all bets were off. Civil war, torture, murder, invasion, collapse, are all on their way. We will introduce Emperor Focus and deal with the aftermath of Maurice's death in a few episodes' time, when the narrative moves forward into the epic 7th century. For now, though, it's time to take a look around the Empire and see what has changed over the last century. We begin in two weeks with a look at the army. For another of Maurice's great achievements was the compilation of a military manual called the Strategicon. We will cast our eyes over this document and see what it can teach us about the changing composition and attitude of the Roman army and its many enemies. I will also begin answering your questions, many of which are about changes in the military. So this means I'm afraid that the time for questions is closing. I don't want to shut any good queries out though, so if you have any more non-military questions to ask, please do send them in in the next two weeks. And if you can't get enough discussion of Byzantium, you can always check out the Byzantine discussion thread on Reddit, which you can find at reddit.com under the subreddit forward slash r forward slash Byzantium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.